Hello and welcome to the Seedcamp podcast. Uh, I'm your host today. It's Neil Murray of tech.eu and the Nordic Web. And today I'm interviewing the person who's normally doing my job, and that's Carlos from Seedcamp. Hi, Carlos. Hey, nice to meet you, Neil, and yeah. seeing you in person after seeing all the great work that you're doing with the TechEU podcast. Thank you. Um, so the reason why Carlos is the guest today is because he's recently had a book out, Fundraising Field Guide, a Startup Founder's Handbook. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the book today. Uh, I'm going to ask Carlos some questions about it, uh, and we're just going to have a discussion around uh, a topic which uh, is extremely important to a lot of founders. Um, and that brings me on to my first question. I think how to raise money, knowing the answer to that is almost like knowing the meaning of life in our circles. Like it's a question that no one really knows how to answer. So how are you in a position to answer it? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, and, and I think your statement about being one of those key areas, fundraising being one of those key areas that are are um, really kind of painful for founders um, is true, it rings very true. And one of the things that I picked up as a saying from a former colleague of mine was that the job of a CEO is to find the right people and keep the company funded. And part of that um, journey is uh, one that at Seedcamp we witness quite a bit and have had the opportunity to work with um, at my previous role as a VC and now during uh, my time at Seedcamp for the last five years, or six now I guess, or getting close to it, is been around working with many companies going through that process and going through it very quickly and then dealing with all the feedback that comes from their journey. And so that that over 100, I guess we're about 180 companies now, um, has, has given me visibility into that process of both uh, raising money and, and helping find the right people to enable a startup to really grow. Yeah. Um, and I think that you, you draw on those experiences very well in the book because um, it, it's definitely not full of fluff. I mean, you really dig down into detail. I mean, actually, something that stood out for me was that one of your pieces of advice in the book is to use track changes on Word on legal documents. I mean, that is the level of detail that you go into. So I was really impressed um, by how practical it was, because I think that's the real issue, right? I mean, it, it there, there is no value in it unless you are giving tangible advice to startups. I mean, many people talk about how you can fundraise and, you know, you should email this way, grab a coffee, whatever, you know, but digging into those details is what's important. Yeah, and, and maybe there's a story that isn't mentioned explicitly in the book, but the book was actually written as a series of blog posts over four and a half years. And the reason why those blog posts existed was because I would get a lot of questions and a lot of um, discussions around certain topics within the seed camp companies. And so I'd write a blog post summarizing the conclusion from that or feedback that I got from other people or advice that I got from other people. And it was through the aggregation of, of those blog posts that this came out. So like, for example, with the track changing, um, came as a function of listening to the lawyers complaining about certain things that were done and also seeing a waste of time that came out. And there's many other sort of uh, examples of that throughout the book where it's a series of blog posts that each of them had a story behind them. And then I spent the last part of this year working on making them flow as a book rather than just a series of disconnected blog posts. Okay. So what, what was the, the, the real motivation between, uh, 
behind turning those blog posts into a book. I don't want the yeah. the, the reason that you've probably given already 10 yeah. times since you released, but the kind of 3 a.m. in a bar reason. You tell me the truth, why you decided yeah. to write a book. Yeah, and I think one of those things that is very hard to represent to people is this feeling that sometimes you get when something is just the obvious next step of work that you've already done. And one of the criticisms that my blog posts got when I, when I write them is that they're too long. Well, it's because I just wanted to be thorough about the subject. And you know whether I hit the mark or not is a different question. I'll leave the critics to, to decide on that. But I knew that I couldn't shortchange the reader with like a, a short sort of trendy length of it. I actually wanted to cover it in detail. And as more and more of them came around, the more I realized that maybe they made more sense in a longer form read, which the natural extension of it was a book. And so that's how it kind of was born. And then I found that by putting it in the flow of a book, conversion on read and comprehension went up because it just made more sense in the flow of the context that the other articles provided the previous article rather than a series of disconnected ones where you, if you land on it, you don't know the context. So that just begged the next step, which was, okay, let me... Let me put this together in a longer form. We, I had two conversa- I had two conversations that really made me think this was a possibility. First one was with Rob Fitzpatrick of the Mom Test, and he kind of walked me through what he had to do to, to make his book. And I was like, oh, I think I can do that. So it, it, it made it in the realm of the possible. And then we invested in this company called Readsy, which is a self-publishing marketplace for um, for authors who are trying to get their works out there and. And brings together all the different parts of the value chain so that uh, an author can then optimize around uh, where he needs to spend money to build this book. And speaking with them, they gave me visibility onto the process itself. So the two fears that I had and how to build this, they they effectively um, made reduced it for me. And as a consequence, I was able to sort of just evolve this already thing that was already happening, already had gained momentum to some extent in my mind. It just made the tipping point... Uh, and made it easier to, to, to follow through with it. Cool. So so picking up on, on some of the, the key themes or points or, or even statements that you make in the book, um, there's, there's a couple that, that I found uh, very interesting and perhaps on the surface maybe don't agree with as well, so I thought it'd be interesting mm. for us to, to, to discuss those. So one of them is about geography, and you say geography matters when it comes, when it comes to raising money. Mm-hmm. Um, my concern with that is that I feel a lot of locations, especially around Europe, use location as an excuse. You know, they say, oh, we can't raise any money here or, or whatever. Whereas I feel that if your product is good enough, if your team is good enough, you can raise money wherever you are. So I wondered, uh, kind of, perhaps uh, there's some middle ground between those, those two statements. Yeah. yeah. I think that the devil's in detail with regards to this particular question, because when you look at them as equal time slices of a company, that statement becomes confusing. But when you look at it as a timeline of events, it becomes more self-evident. Being, if you're born in, let's say, Croatia, and your universe of Croatian investors is limited, when you fast forward two years and you've received money from Silicon Valley, it seems like, well, you're a top company in Croatia, therefore you naturally got money from Silicon Valley. But how you got there wasn't that clear. And so, for example, we invest in a company called Farmeron, and it was born out of Croatia. We met the company in Slovenia. He had done the effort of not only researching us, but then coming to meet us in Slovenia. And when we first looked at the company, it was still needed a little bit more work. 
And so then Mattia, the founder, then eventually did get into seed camp during seed camp week. And then we helped the process of him raising money for uh, the additional round that he had, which included a lot of U.S. investors, um, Softech and, and 500 startups to, to include two of them. And you look at that journey and you say, wait a second, top companies get top money. But no, hold on. There was like a step there. He, he originally he got rejected by Seed Camp in the first time around. And through Seed Camp, it became. So there's a, a step change of, yeah. of, um, of enablement here. You know, some of the companies that are, let's say, I'm going to pick another country here for a second, like Portugal. Like there's a universe of Portuguese investors. Some are good. Some are less helpful. And if you raise money from the right ones, for example, they will open doors for you. Those doors lead to the next opportunity, which lead to the next opportunity. And then it seems like a fair complete that you were going to be successful. But it, it's not obvious until you've kind of gone through those steps. So geography matters in terms of the realm of the opportunities and probabilities that you have stacked against you or for you. And if you're, let's say, a UK company, you're just in the context of an environment that is uh, more generous when it comes to um, to funding rounds and let's say a deeper part or a southern part of, of, of Europe where there might not be enough capital. But do you feel that if, if you are good enough, you will get money no matter where you are? Yeah, if, if you're good enough, by the way, that the, I think there's an extra caveat to add to that. If you're good enough and you manage to demonstrate you're good enough within the time frame of the cash you have, then yeah, you will yeah. likely be able to. There's many companies who are good enough they just run out of the little cash they had to be able to get there, right? And that's and that's the unfortunate reality. There's probably just as many founders that have made it that are really good as those who didn't, but not because they weren't good, but because the time it takes to go fundraising, which can sometimes take six to nine months, they just ran out of cash before they even had a chance to get on the plane to meet the person that they needed to meet. Uh, another thing you say is, um, when it comes to an, uh, raising investment and, and kind of meeting investors, it's often not what you know, but who you know. Mm -hmm. And you stress the importance of connections and, and building relationships. Um, I completely agree that that's, that's really important. But then I also feel that there's perhaps a little um, uh, kind of depressing undertone in the sense that someone else may be able to, you know, my competitor may be able to raise money. My product might be slightly better, but they know more investors than me or have better connections. Do, do you feel that that's um, kind of a little something that is depressing about the investment game? I think it's, I think it's depressing about life in general if you yeah. want to look at it that way. I mean, some of the analogies that I use in the book for humor's sake, but also because it's relevant, are dating analogies. Mm. Um, yes, you can go as a single guy to a bar and try to talk to people uh, and, and hope that it'll convert. But think about the difference between that and going with a bunch of friends. Right? And leveraging the friendships of friends of friends to get there. I mean, there's there's even websites, dating websites built on that premise that you meet people through people. And so, yeah, it's inherently unfair. It's inherently unfair that the odds are stacked in favor of those who have more relationships. So if that is the reality of things, the best thing you can do is either receive investment from an investor who has those relationships or go and build those relationships yourself over a period of time. Hence the point about really good founders, sometimes the moment they embark on a, a project, sometimes they run out of time to build those relationships to get them where they need to get to. 
Um, you talk about a founder who uh, received investment on his 89th uh, meeting yeah. <laughs> with, with different investors. It was 80 something. I can't remember if it was 86 or it was 87. Okay, no, I think you said he had, he had 88. Yeah. And then on his 89, oh, yes. he yeah. got it. I actually called him up to say, dude, can you tell me exactly what you said? I want to get it right. And he said, yeah. So whatever is in the book is what, what, what he told me. Yeah. yeah. So it was on his 89th, he got investment. Yeah. But my, my question is, is, is maybe a lot simpler than that. It's like, when should you give up? Like, when have you had, you know, when have you met enough investors? I mean, I've got to be honest, if it was me, I'd had 88 meetings yeah. with investors, I probably would have given up by now. Yeah. Is there a point where you feel like you should give up? Or like, you know, was he admirable mm-hmm. in continuing to, to kind of not give up? Mm. I mean, he obviously was because he got investment in the end, but or was he, you know, where's the tipping point where he was just wasting his time? Yeah, uh, very good question. And one that, um, I think Seth Godin does a really good job of, of articulating around his, his book, The Dip. And if you want to think about it as a combination of what he says in The Dip, along with another book on, on strategy, um, the, it's called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. One of the things that you quickly realize is that if you cannot foresee yourself being really, really good, if not the best, in the sector that you're going after, then you probably should quit. Because that basically means that if you don't quit and you persist, that the best that you're going to be is average, then that's not worth doing. So in the case of this company, uh, without disclosing the founder, um, just for obviously for obvious reasons, um, the the product was at the caliber where with the right resources, it would it was the only one for a while, and it, it's still a leg up from its competitors. Yeah. And so it was in the foreseeable. It was just a matter of time because it was the, the, the best in its category. There's a lot of other companies who are, let's say, Me Too products. Those are a little bit harder, right? Like Me Too products might have Me Too-ness because they do one feature that's slightly better than somebody else's. And that feature might turn out to be the killing thing, which like it might just be so awesome that, that it, it generates a level of traction and interest for somebody to back it really quickly. But if it doesn't, then you're stuck with, am I going to be able to pull this off with a Me Too product? And of course, I don't want to simplify the cause of failure because you've asked me that question in the context of that specific company and that was the specific issue of that specific company. Yeah. But there's so many other variables upon which you might have 89 rejections. It could be that you're just not the guy. Yeah. Like it might be the company's great, it might be that the product's great, it might be that you as the CEO just do not have the, the ability to communicate this or it might be that you're just not credible in it. And so I think part of um, going through that, that, uh, that rejection process is thinking through what it is that you're being rejected for and it's not always about the idea itself. It could be you, like, which is a really painful realization but you know we've had... Uh, companies where the CEO needed to step down and become some other role in the company and maybe some other person. I mean, in this particular situation, it was the head of product who ended up being a CEO at a later date because the CEO who they had just wasn't capable of, of, of delivering the, the right level of inspiration to, to investors and as well as, as raising their necessary capital. And I guess luck plays a part in in a, in a way as well. I mean, in these meetings with investors, and you touch upon that in the book, you say that, you know, people's moods and even hunger can affect someone's decision. You know, if they haven't eaten before you meet them, they're going to be in a bad mood. Perhaps they want to get the meeting over with quickly. Um, so I guess luck plays a part as well. I yeah. mean, 
do you do you feel that there's any sort of um, ratio percentage whatever or figure you can put on how much luck plays when it comes to fundraising no I, I don't but the reason why I put that in there because putting that in there would would mean wait a second Carlos if you're telling us that like some of this is luck well how fucking useful is that for me right like <laughs> yeah. and and I'd say well the reason why it's there is not because it's going to be useful in any way that you're going to capitalize you're not going to I mean, you could optimize around it. You'd be like, yeah. okay, did he eat already? Or yeah. not? Like you could, you could do all these hacks to try yeah. to chase something. Yeah. But the reason why I put it in there was mostly because I wanted people to realize that there's so many other variables at play yeah. that you shouldn't knock yourself entirely. It shouldn't be like, oh, I need to optimize my slides yet again because I got another reject. In this case, it could just be that the person either didn't have money, was in a bad mood, um, had just invested in your competitor. Like there's so many other things that the best thing that you can do is try to come up with a series of hypotheses and then track to see how the next one goes. And if you start seeing a pattern, then it might actually be something that you need to do, but it could just be a one-off. And what about herd mentality? I mean, I, I think part of it when when you're raising uh, money, you know, if, if you've met with one investor, he says, yeah, I'm in, but kind of I want someone else to lead it or, you know, People often kind of waiting to see if other investors are going to come in on the round as well. Um, how much of a part does herd mentality play when it comes to firms joining an, in an, an investment? Do they have to see that others are interested? Mm. So there's two types of herd mentalities, right? There's the first one, which is a sector herd mentality, right? Like, oh, one person made money in this one sector, like, and all of a sudden everybody else wants to get into that sector, yeah. right? I saw this weird graph over the weekend, which I, I wish I could tell you where it was, but it was a, a sort of food delivery investments, and it showed like the first one, and then a whole yeah. bunch right after, right? And I think that just nature, that's just life. And it's like, oh, that's probably a good sector, right? And there's certain sectors right now which you know include uh, you know fintech and others, and then in years past it was um, stuff like um, uh, clean tech, you know, where that was a huge. Um, inflow of capital and then eventually it was too much capital going in for that individual sector. Now, then there's the other kind of grouping which is syndication, right? Where like there is a group of people who are interested in a company or interested in a, um, um, a sort of a lead investor and you say, if that guy's in, I'm in too because that guy's really smart. So if that guy's really smart, that company must be really good. And so that's a human nature again. I mean, there's we do that all the time for everything. I mean, we, that's why like there's social likes on on websites mm -hmm. to show that it's the same thing. So it's kind of a bit funny when when people get frustrated about that. When we all do it, it's just part of our inherent human nature. The trick is trying to find that individual, that influencer, who then allows you to to use their name as a way of influencing those that that are probably a little bit more hesitant. Um, and in terms of who you approach for money. You mentioned different options in the book. So you talk about institutional investors like VCs, angels, and you also talk about kind of equity crowdfunding as well. Yeah. Um, kind of a, uh, an accusation that's been, I think, doing the rounds recently is that people only rely or, or go to equity crowdfunding if they can't raise money from an institutional investor. Um, I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I think one that hasn't really hashed itself out yet, just yet. I think when when I wrote the book, I wanted to take a view that wouldn't date the book so you know so quickly, um, because I think that crowdfunding is here to stay in terms of the structure. Um, I think that the newer funds 
that are going to be coming online are going to have some element of, of crowdfunding built into them. And you could argue that funds themselves, depending on where the money's come from, is a, a sort of aggregated crowdfunding, you know, depending on whether it's a pension fund that was an LP into a venture fund. So the idea behind a stigma for any different kind of capital class is, is one that is is not just limited to crowdfunding, it's also like specific right. angels yeah. and specific funds, is it a good fund, is it a yeah. bad fund? So I think that crowdfunding will have a maturation the same way that those have received a maturation. This platform will be known for better deals. This platform will be known for more distressed deals. Yeah. But the thing is, what you just need to have as a founder and, and as the ecosystem as a whole is clarity on what the signal for that is, right? Because like, there's money to be made in backing arguably maybe tier two or tier three companies in the eyes of sort of maybe an investor yeah. on the basis that actually they've been misplaced, they've been mislabeled. And as a matter of fact, you're getting a discount for that, right? And there's plenty of, of circumstances like that. You hear plenty of stories from founders who you know, were dismissed by top investors and they got backing from an investor who was a little well, less well-known. And then as a consequence, that investor became a prominent investor on the tail end of backing somebody that everybody else had rejected. So that same sort of uh, fracturing uh, and subdivision will happen in crowdfunding. It's just that right now we're at the very early stages of that. And you, you touched a little there on the, the type of investors. Um, and in terms of type of investments, you have a couple of warnings in your book in, in terms of kind of investors and investments to avoid. Um, one is, and I always struggle to pronounce this word, tran- trenched, tranched, tranched investments. Yeah. Um, and also toxic investments. Yeah. And for me, like, and you point this out as well, like toxic investment, like it's so obvious, yet people are still doing it. Like, and it is still happening. And yeah. I guess I, I want, wanted to know what your take is in terms of why do people still take toxic, toxic investments? Why do people take, you know, give away 75% of their company at seed, for example? Yeah. Um, is it just because they're in desperation mode? Yeah. Well, I think the, the question is a very valid one, but I, I want to like, in the spirit of, of, of the previous question you asked me about saying something that, you know, I probably wasn't so clear in the book. Um, the reason why I included that was because toxicity is a relative thing. Yeah. And the example that I use in the book is an obvious one that everyone can see. Yeah. But where this really plays out is in the ones that are less obvious. And the problem is that the, the less obvious cases are completely shifting all the time, right? In the market that's increasingly getting heated in terms of valuations, the quicker it is that you can start assuming that rounds that used to be normal about a year or two years or three years ago now look toxic. So the first answer to your question is that it's so relative. It's relative to the macroeconomic market. It's relative to what other competitors are, are doing uh, in terms of capital. And so toxicity is not a static thing. It's easier when you can look at it from the point of view of a 75% ownership on a on the tail end of a 100K investment. It becomes less clear when an investor is putting in X amount of money for some some number less than 40%. Well, is that the right number, right? You don't know. And where that becomes relevant is that the next round of invest, the next round of investment might have a view on that and might require a recapitalization of the company in order to proceed. And this is where it gets really tricky because you might inadvertently get yourself into a toxic situation without knowing it. 
And that's sometimes what happens. I don't think it's always that it's so obvious that you're getting yourself into a toxic yeah. situation. Although in some cases it could be like, this is the last capital I can get. I'd rather have a toxic cap table and die altogether. Yeah. That's some, I mean, clearly that's some of the t- uh, circumstances. But other times it's just not really knowing where that bar is. And it's not like it's very transparent what's going on in the Valley live and what's going on live, let's say, in, in some other country. So you can compare the two. And it's not always clear that you will end up raising money from the places where toxicity is different than what it is in your geography. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and something else that, that isn't, I think, always clear or that a lot of startup founders don't have like a clear understanding of and actually this is one of my favorite parts of the book is actually where you go into detail in terms of convertible notes because mm. like to me when you're that that's like clearly like a big option for for how you're going to get early stage investment um but a lot of founders don't even understand what that is so but when a ceo's job as you say part of it is to to fundraise right so yeah if, if a ceo part of a ceo's job is is to fundraise how come they don't know the details of convertible note because you yeah. think that's going to be a big part of, of what their day to day will be. Yeah, no, it's very it's a very good question, and I don't think it's it's necessarily uh, a fault of any CEO or founder. It's just that it's a complicated thing, right? Yeah. Like it it takes many people, uh, like lawyers and and um, investors, involved to get an agreement on on a convertible note, and the average founder when they start off didn't start off as a background in law or background in, in investment so part of the trick here is really as a as a ceo is informing yourself on these things early enough so that you are not then caught sort of cold on it but one of the things that i talk about in the book is not putting structure ahead of what you actually need or what your company needs because the flip side can sometimes be the case. You read a blog post about convertible notes. You think that they're the bee's knees or the or YC safe or any other one of the structures that are existent. In some different countries, they have different structures. And you fall in love with that because you think, oh, the great thing about a convertible note is I can get my money quickly. I don't have to do this. It's a lot cheaper. Blah, 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 blah. You go through all that because you read some blog posts and you understand it. But then you fail to recognize the fact that what makes your company interesting in the specific jurisdiction that you're in is that there's tax relief for specific investors if it comes in this other way. And if you go fundraising on that basis, you've shot yourself in the foot because you might have created a division between what other investors want and and what you're proposing as a structure. So in the book I talk about identify needs first, identify the people you want to work with first, then let the structure be an optimization around that. And once you know what the structure is going to be, then do your best job of informing yourself on how that structure works and the pros and cons of it. You talk about when investors are evaluating your your company and evaluating whether they should invest, that what they're trying to work out is the the maximum return of uh, exit exit Mm -hmm. value. Um, that, that part of the book made me like, I, I couldn't figure out whether I thought that investors job is either really hard and they're really, really skilled when they're successful or whether they're just lucky. Cause it is almost like pinning a tail on a donkey. Is that what kind of determines whether, uh, whether an investor is successful or not? Of course, the amount of exits and returns they get on their portfolio, but that ability to determine what the potential exit could be for me that seems like that that has to be the most important part of an investor's job having that ability to to make that calculation is that the most important part yeah i mean look it's it's going to function it's 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 going to vary depending on what stage you're talking about right like 
With a later stage investor, there's a skill set required in analyzing the competitive landscape and the growth metrics of a company vis-a-vis the amount of capital they need to accelerate that company to like world domination, right? There is a skill set there. But that skill set's very, very different than the skill set of a very early stage investor like Seedcamps, where we're backing a team, really, backing a team in an idea. So success for us is gonna be very different than success for them, right? For sec- success for us as a knock-on effect is an exit, of course. I mean, that ultimately that's you, you as an investor given money to multiply it, to give it back to the people who gave you the money. Like that's an investor's job in the most simplest of terms. But moving on from that, then it becomes, well, what's the next proxy for that value? Especially in the shorter term when you haven't yet completely sort of harvested the, the, the reaps of the labor, um, the fruits of the labor. So what do you use as a proxy? Well, with early stage, it could be follow-on funding, right? Like if I got my company funded by an additional investor, does that therefore mean that I've done my job well? Well, it will have to do until you have an exit event. Whereas if you are a later stage investment, maybe it is the exit event a couple of years or you know more years after you invested that show that you could really pick the winners. You offer a lot of conventional uh, advice, as I said at, at the beginning, very a lot of details um, in, in terms of what you cover in the book. And actually, an, another one of my, my favorite things up in the tracking the words, uh, tracking the changes in the legal documents was you pointing out that one of the best things you could do is prepare your material so you have a one pager and a mobile device friendly format because that's you know ultimately what investor will probably see it on first. Um, and like it's those pieces of advice that I feel are actually probably missing when it comes to like this topic at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I think you do do like a really good job of like picking those like little bits um, of advice that you may not be necessarily thinking about when you're just like thinking about oh I'm raising money. Yeah. Um, but what uh, like what is your most I guess unconventional piece of advice you would have when it comes to raising money? Yeah. Like something that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Yeah, I mean, there's what you wouldn't necessarily think about, and what you would potentially. Um, Think about, it, but just didn't think it was important. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so I'm going to try to like uh, try to give you an example of both. But the whole example about the PDF or email is actually a really funny one because I've seen a lot of decks that are really innovative in terms of their use of like theatrics or maybe like you know flash or whatever to showcase what the company did, and it's great. But one of the things that we talk about within Seedcamp is knowing your customer and knowing the habits of your customer, where your customer consumes things. And so in a way, what I've done in the book is I've, I've tried to say, um, understand the psychology of an investor. Understand how they think, what they use, what, you know, what apps are they using, what mobile devices do they use. And so I've optimized the advice around understanding the customer and me explaining it to, to uh, a founder from an investor's point of view, look at these things, right? And so part of the advice that is unconventional is not necessarily uh, something that you might have not heard before, but maybe something that wasn't given enough importance yep. when they start fundraising. It's that it is a relational process, and we covered that a little earlier, but that relationship doesn't happen overnight. Like, if you're going to be taking X amount of money from this person in the future, and that X is a quantum that's meaningful, you're going to have to have multiple points of interaction with that individual before they're going to be able to represent you to their investment committee or their spouse, if it's an angel, right? And so that seems like probably the 
the least sexy bit of information kind of like it's not like well you should really not do this as a cap or you should do this as a you know valuation thing no like all those things are important but try to understand who you're going to be getting in bed with here in terms of an investor because not only is it about converting better on conversations in a future point in time where you're going to have better conversion on um, any triggers of I'm fundraising now please invest in me because they've known you it's going to increase but it does another thing it also gives you visibility into whether or not that person is actually the kind of person that is going to be destructive or constructive within your company so part of that is doing due diligence on these people you're so used to being on the receiving end of the due diligence and sometimes it's very easy just to rely on on reputations just go out and ask other founders ask the, the the portfolio CEOs of these people of those investors hey how's it like to work with this person what are they like and you know are they helpful are they not you know do they get angry at you have they screwed you over and like all these kinds of things and it makes a difference right yeah. and take multiple data points because just like there are always negative data points for everything there's also going to be a lot of positive data points and you just need to understand the context and with those two things in mind you can probably reduce a lot of mistakes smart money is better than easy money right yeah um a kind of central theme throughout the book um something that you kind of keep coming back to and something that i feel is like one of the main questions that people have uh when it comes to fundraising is you know, when should I be fundraising? And you, you mentioned desperation mode a couple of times, like don't get into desperation mode before you start to look for money. So I guess my question is, should you always be fundraising? Should yeah. you always be looking for investment? Yeah, actually one of my old colleagues used to have that expression, like you're always fundraising. Yeah. And I think there's, there's definitely a rationale for that. It's just the way that your fundraising changes, right? If you've just raised a round, you're in relationship building mode. If you're about to raise a round, you're in aggregating the information about your company at that point in time to represent it to a bunch of investors. And then while you're in the midst of fundraising, you are now representing both updated information and you're going through a list of people and connecting them and asking for cross-references and bringing together syndicate partners. So that's the cycle, right? This And, and there was, I was thinking about, and titling that sector, that segment of the book, like the fundraising cycle, or, yeah. but but um, it's really um, it's really about yeah being in, thinking about it iteratively, thinking about that process iteratively, thinking about that relationship as one that just takes time, and you don't want to leave that to the last minute, and then find yourself trying to just like you can't uh, speed up getting to know somebody, you can't speed up. The fundraising process yeah. so that's why some companies get themselves into desperation mode either waited too long or they didn't really think about the cash needs that they needed in the previous round to get a little further along and there's a few companies where they did those two things and they just something went wrong like their product didn't deliver the customers weren't there and in those circumstances it's about sort of gritting your teeth and trying to like make do with what you what you have by highlighting the best bits of what you have which in some cases can be an amazing team that has discovered something and is now ready to iterate on that new discovery. And you have maybe a week's or two weeks worth of data that shows that new discovery. So there's, there's always something that you can highlight to showcase it, even if in the short term you had like something that went not quite right. Um, so my last question is what I feel is 
my personal uh, opinion is the hardest thing about fundraising and that is accounting for investors personal preferences mm -hmm. like for me I, I I've had startups in the past and when I was uh, looking to raise what I found really difficult was knowing that from one meeting to the next this investor probably wants me to put a team at the beginning of the pitch or this one wants me to put a team at the end of the pitch or you know this one wants me to focus on this metric they're interested in this metric and what I always found hard was like you know how do, how do I go prepared when it is sometimes just a matter of taste how can you kind of account for that and how can you prepare for that yeah and that's actually one of the most gutting bits of the fundraising process because you're, you're hearing very credible people giving you very you know, sometimes very good feedback on what's wrong in this way or that way and ultimately it comes down to taking a view right like you can either look at this as an aggregate of multiple opinions and picking the best ones and discarding those that you disagree with alternatively it could be that they incrementally give you a view as to how you need to better yourself and then there's ones that are trivial that do not necessarily generate a lot of of quantum of improvement like it's a team slide here or a team slide there now when something let's say let's take a, an example of the team slide which i think is a very good one uh, as a question like, let's say somebody were to give you feedback as you should not have the team slide in the back you should have it in the front and you might be like really what why does that matter if you do it in isolation and you just move the team slide from the back to the front, you just see it as a, as a data point that seems a little bit maybe out of place without any real background for it. Let's say you have five meetings afterwards and those five meetings, not a single one mentions the whole team slide at all. But you realize that for the most part, they think that you guys just don't know what you're doing. Like it just seems like such a weird thing that you're building this company and why would you be building this company? And let's say, you look at that and you say, well, actually, we talk about that in our team slide. We do. Yeah. So what's going on? Like, is it that in the team slide so far down the stack in the presentation that they've already tuned out? Or is it that we don't talk about our background that led to this product more? And so an interesting thing to do, and this is why I talk about the, the, the fundraising process and the iterate nature of the, of the materials, is thinking through some of this feedback and seeing that sometimes it's more connected than you think. It might be that by moving that slide as at the bottom to the front and talking about, let me tell you about my background as a founder, what I was doing before, and what my colleagues were doing before, that led us to the creation of this product and therefore justifying the product's validity vis-a-vis -vis your understanding of the customer segment. So that one piece of discarded advice that seemed a little bit stupid at the beginning all of a sudden becomes more meaningful with five more data points, none of which referred to it directly, but indirectly you, you ascertain that perhaps there was some validity in the original statement, even if poorly explained. Yeah. And actually, that, that is such a great point, and it is a really good piece of advice. And actually, I noticed I, I, when I read the book, it was on the, the Kindle version, and I noticed that one of the most highlighted quotes was exactly on that, actually. So it's, it's clearly something people are struggling with, because it was, analyzing what was said during your meeting and learning how to improve on your mistakes is the most crucial step in finding the right investor more quickly. And a lot of people have highlighted that exact statement. So I think it's clearly an issue that, that people struggle with. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot from from reading the book. I would encourage anyone who's who's looking to fundraise, or even in a startup, or has fundraised, whatever. Everyone can can definitely pick something out of the book, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading it. And it was a pleasure to kind of hear more of your insight and experience in in writing the book as well. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, uh, thanks, Neil. And until next time, guys. Bye.